I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. This episode is part of our mini-series on the Tudor dynasty. What do you really need to know about Henry VIII? Today's episode provides you, in a nutshell, with all the answers. We're going to be thinking about Henry VIII's upbringing as a second son, his marriage to Catherine, his exploits on the battlefield and tilt yard, his dependence on Thomas Wolsey, his romance with Anne Boleyn, the break with Rome, his foreign policy, murderous legislation, the downfall of Thomas Cromwell, and the king's response to manipulation. This is the second and most infamous Tudor monarch, and the truth about him may surprise you. Leading us on the way is my guest, Dr Lucy Wooding, Langford Fellow and tutor in history at Lincoln College, Oxford. She is the author of an excellent biography on Henry VIII, and her most recent book, which brought her onto the podcast for the first time, is Tudor England, A History, published by Yale University Press. I went to Lincoln College to talk with her. Dr. Wooding, thank you so much for inviting me back to Lincoln College and thank you for coming on to Not Just the Tudors. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's very nice to have you back in Lincoln, which I hope still feels like home. It does indeed. It's always lovely to be here. And it's a particularly convivial place to sit and chat about Henry VIII. And today we're going to be doing a sort of starter for 10 for those who want to understand Henry VIII. This is for those who know him already, but also for those who are starting from complete scratch. So let's begin at the beginning. He is born into a generation of a newly established, a relatively precarious dynasty. Mm. He's the second son, and historians have made much of the fact that it was his elder brother who was trained to be king, and that Henry was, we're told, brought up in a feminized environment. What do you make of his early years, and how pivotal do you think they are to his later rule? There's been a lot of speculation about those early years, but we have to remember it is mostly speculation because we know almost nothing. And I think the temptation to psychoanalyze people across the centuries is always there, but I think as historians we have to be a little bit careful. I think the one thing that would have stayed with him was the insecurity surrounding his dynasty because his father spent a great deal of his reign fighting off one pretender after another and responding to threats on all sides and many of those threats backed by powers elsewhere in Europe. Yeah I think the atmosphere of anxiety probably 
shaped him more than most. The idea that Oh, his father groomed Arthur for kingship and Henry had a sort of secondary role among the girls. I don't know how far we can take that. He obviously received a good education, as any Renaissance prince would at this point in time. But we don't really know anything about him until he bounces onto the stage at his brother's wedding and participated quite gleefully in the celebrations. And that was an enormous celebration. I mean, it was such a coup that... Henry VII had managed to secure that alliance with Castile and Aragon, we would come to know as Spain. Yeah, I should imagine he enjoyed the party. And it's interesting because one of the things about Henry VIII is that he mostly likes to marry women he knows. And the first person he marries is, of course, his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. What do we know about their early relationship? Do you think it was a happy marriage? I think it was. I think one of the things that gets lost to view is the fact that they were happily married for almost 20 years and had a lot of pregnancies, sadly, which didn't lead to living children apart from in one instance. But yeah, I think they were close. She was a very impressive woman. She was very educated, very pious. I think he adored her, insofar as we can see. He broke some of the rules in that when he rides in a tournament, he rides with her initials. He takes her as his patron in the joust, and that wasn't usual practice. And he's very attentive, too, to her pregnancies. And OK, you could say he needs to be because securing the succession is so important, but there seems to be some genuine concern there for her state, and particularly when she's in the sort of those awkward early weeks... So, yeah, and I think also she's a badge of credibility because that is such an important alliance and because England in the 15th, 13th, 16th century is a little bit on the fringe of the continent. That alliance had really brought England onto the European stage in a way I think it hadn't been before, and I think Henry celebrated that. He also, of course, had hopes of his father-in-law as helping him with his aspirations in France, his military aspirations. It was a bit unfortunate that didn't really work out. He turned out to be a very unreliable ally. But it made a lot of sense politically and, I think, personally for Henry to marry Catherine. That marriage is one of the first things he did when he became king, and he's just shy of his 18th birthday. Mm. And those early years are marked by the tragedy of their son, Prince Henry, dying at seven weeks old. Mm. What else do you think we ought to notice about those early years? I suppose we should think about the way in which Henry VII's reputation was systematically shredded in those years because that set up a caricature almost of Henry VII that has been remarkably long-lived. I think when Henry VIII comes to the throne, he's 17, he's full of life, vigour, he's very sporty, loves to hunt, loves to joust. And so in many ways he seems like a contrast with his father. But I think he was manipulated, actually, by the political elite of the time. I think he was encouraged to position himself in contradistinction to his father who had been a very successful king. Henry VII deserves way more credit than he ever gets. He had really achieved an extraordinary amount politically and yet he had also been a very efficient king and efficient at making people pay their taxes which nobody likes doing. 
although that had brought stability to the country generally, and, and the mass of the population, I suspect, probably was appreciative of that, the political elite did not appreciate being made to pay their taxes. And so I think they encourage the young Henry VIII to think of himself as magnanimous and generous and so on and so forth, unlike his father. I think this is where the myth of Henry VII as some kind of miser comes from. And so the judicial murder of Empson and Dudley, so very early on in the reign, I think is part of that, a sort of calculated distancing of himself from his father. In the 15-teens, war with France seems to be Mm. pressing on Henry's mind. And we say about Henry VIII that he wants to have his own Agincourt. He wants to be Mm -hmm. like Henry V. But some people might argue that his achievements in France are not very great. In fact, of course, Thomas Cromwell will go on to call the captured towns of Tournai and Terroin ungracious dog holes. What do you make of it? Do you think that he has any hope of regaining his ancestral lands? I suppose it depends where you draw the line around his ancestral lands. But I think the ambition to have some territory in northern France was reasonable enough. But it is very much about the appearance of success, isn't it? It's about the appearance of military skill. Because at this point, kingship is still so very much tied to that illusion of strength or appearance of strength you had to look like a credible ruler in order to be able to compel people's obedience because ultimately any Tudor monarch has very limited means of coercion so the play acting is actually a very real part of the political process you have to look plausible so I think that was behind his ambitions in France that and the fact that he's 17 he wants to fight a war he wants to win a glorious victory. The Battle of the Spurs, as it is generously called, was a bit of a kind of skirmish in the field. It wasn't really a battle at all, but they do a lot with it. They use all of their skills of self-fashioning to make that look like more than it was. And the capture of those cities, even if Cromwell was disparaging later, that is a significant achievement. But I think when that didn't work, the fact that with Wolsey's help he then turns to the Treaty of London and the idea of becoming the Renaissance peacemaker of Europe is probably second best for him but it's still part of constructing the royal image in an impressive way yeah I think the political value of war is something we need to remember in your book actually you really bring out this idea that whereas historians before have followed actually Wolsey's first biographer, George Cavendish, in saying, oh, Henry's spending lots of time hunting, he's spending lots of time at sport, and this is him casting off the affairs of state onto Wolsey. You have made clear that this is a kind of forced dichotomy, that his business as king is not just signing papers. Can you explain? Yes, I suppose there's a sort of anachronistic thinking at work there, because we have this vague sense that government ought to consist in a lot of paperwork. And obviously, there has to be some, but even today, I think those in power delegate a large share of the paperwork. So Henry VIII was no different to them. And the business of hunting, jousting, all of these displays of youthful manly vigour, these are an important political tool. Because when you joust with the people who are also members of your 
political elite, the people who you would require to raise an army and bring it to fight alongside you, should there be a war, and also the people you will depend on in other circumstances to put down rebellions, to represent you in the provinces. So anything you can do to strengthen the ties within that group will be very valuable. And equally, when the king goes on progress and goes hunting, perhaps with the local gentry, it's an enormous accolade to be invited to share with the king in a hunting expedition. And the presence of venison at the end of the day, they're securing political loyalties. Just the physical presence of a king can do an enormous amount to build bridges, strengthen groupings within provincial society, secure their loyalty. I think that's such a helpful corrective because this sense that we have of going to war immediately makes us think that there's an army. There's not an army. (laughs) There's no standing army. And friendship, as you've just explained, is so crucial to the workings of every form of political life at the time, including Mm. martial. Yes, I think that's why you get such interesting discussions in the literature of the time of this concept of friendship. Friendship to us is perhaps a very private business in the 21st century, but friendship in the 16th century was something which had enormous political currency. They paid attention to it. Talking of friendship, we've mentioned Thomas Wolsey, who is someone who rises to power in part because of the formidable organisational and logistical skills he demonstrates in France. Mm -hmm. And then he is at the centre of power for 15 years. Can you tell me what you think of the relationship between Henry and Wolsey? I think it was a very efficient relationship. I think they got a lot of business done. I think it probably got Henry used to running the church in England, long before officially he did, because with Wolsey as papal legate at his side, he could pretty much secure what he wanted to happen. I think it also perhaps gave Henry, maybe it gave him false confidence in his abilities to get things done, because Wolsey did bring about whatever Henry wanted. He wanted a war in France, he wanted a universal peace treaty, he wanted a huge and splendid summit with the French king. Wolsey will make these things happen. And one of the stories of the 1530s is Henry not necessarily being able to make things happen the way he wants. But I think when Wolsey was at his side, they made a very good working partnership. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we're apt to forget that England at the beginning of the 16th century is not that impressive as a political power in Europe Mm. by comparison to... France or Mm. Castile, all Mm. of these other territories. And I suppose there's a sense that Wolsey evens that up a bit. He makes England far more important and perhaps gives Henry a sense of the importance of the country that is disproportionate to its actual power without Wolsey. Wolsey could hold his own, really, with some of the great princes of the church that we see in Italy and France in the empire. His construction of Hampton Court, I think, says a lot his foundation of what today is Christchurch College Oxford, Cardinal College obviously when he founded it. These are very grand institutions and constructions and they were all of a part with the rest of his artistic and cultural patronage. And yes, he is living up to the expectations set by those elsewhere in Europe. And we are rather apt to skip over the 24 or 27, depending on whose reckoning you're using, years of the marriage of Henry and Catherine. Mm. 
as you say, happy for perhaps 20 or so of them. Happy, I say, to an extent. Of course, it's famously beset by emotional pain. They have this series of children who mm. die at birth, or who die within a few hours or days or weeks of birth, apart from Mary, born in 1516. What do you make of the partnership between Henry and Catherine? Again, I think for a long time it worked very well. She had the kind of standing and assurance, which meant that she could hold her own in any diplomatic situation. She was clearly beloved of her subjects, so people, I think, were genuinely distraught when it seemed that Henry was rejecting her. We see the citizens of London protesting, the women of London. We see quite outspoken loyalty to Catherine. I think she probably brought out the best in him, probably gave him enormous confidence. She's that little bit older. She comes from a much more established lineage and kingdom. She has an education to match his. She makes sure that their daughter has a world-class education. She's a formidable woman, and I think he probably appreciates that. And then, of course, we get to the mid-1520s, when, from Catherine's point of view, she sees Henry's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, in Oboard, mm. which looks like Henry is planning to oust her daughter from the line of succession. Mm. Then, not his first affair, but an affair that particularly seems to grab him, Henry meets Anne Boleyn. Mm. Do you think that with J.J. Scarisbrick, if there had been no divorce, Henry might yet have taken issue with the church? Or do you think this is this love affair with Anne Boleyn that sparks the whole business of what we've come to know as the break with Rome? I think that the relationship with Anne Boleyn was important, but I think part of the reason why he was so attracted to her was because she already represented things that were important to him outside of just affairs of the heart. Henry is constructing himself as a Renaissance prince and part of that involves erudition, interest in some of the intellectual advances of the day. So he is very interested in humanism. He's proud of knowing Erasmus, one of the greatest humanists of the time. And Humanism is a tricky concept to define, of course, but one of the things it involves is obviously an interest in the classics, but also an interest in the Bible and in adhering to the true word of the Bible and perhaps questioning some of the existing translations. It's certainly true that Henry patronises a study of Greek and Hebrew, the two biblical languages. So I think he was always going to be interested in currents of religious reform. And that's already led him to write a book against Luther in 1521. I think he would have been a reformer anyway. But of course, at this point in time, you can be a reformer and stay a Catholic. This is not a problem. And indeed, again, if you looked at his parents-in-law, Ferdinand and Isabella had done quite a lot to promote Catholic reformation monastic orders were being reformed, universities were being founded, colleges, and the question of biblical translation was a very sort of hot topic. And so too the education of clerics, you know, the sort of improvement of clerical standards, and the promotion of education generally. So all of these things, I think he would have been interested in these. And when Anne Boleyn comes along, obviously she's been raised at the French court. She has a translation of the New Testament into the vernacular 
in this case the French vernacular, she is also, I think, excited by some of these ideas of reform and reconstruction. But you can do all of that without having to turn to Protestantism. Yes, in other words, reform actually is about being a good Catholic (laughs) rather Mm. than becoming a Protestant. And one of the great misconceptions we have of Henry is that he found the Protestant church in England. He's never a Protestant, is he? No, he's never a Protestant. He dallies a little bit with some of the ideas, but he has a sort of visceral loathing of some of the most central Protestant contentions. He is never persuaded by this idea of salvation by faith alone. Salvation has to come through faith and works. And he is always a very staunch defender of the Mass, and in particular, the Eucharistic doctrine at the, the heart of the Mass. Anyone questioning whether the bread and wine in the Eucharist become the flesh and blood of Christ, he has no time for that at all. That is always heresy in his eyes. Which leads to that extraordinary moment where he's presiding over the trial of John Lambert. Yes. In white, as the epitome of pure justice. Yes, a slightly worrying piece of play acting, really. He seems to have taken the royal supremacy way, way too seriously. When people start thinking that they are, in fact, the mouthpiece of God, it's often problematic. Problematic, yes, it's a good word. What do you think the central tenets of Henry's faith are, then, if we can say that there is something distinct, idiosyncratic about the nature of Henry's belief? There's been a lot of debate about this, and the more sceptical view would say, oh, he just picks up the bits that he likes to look at and puts them together into this rather kind of messy configuration. Other people would argue that, no, there is some consistency. I think that his devotion to the Bible is important. He's already interested in it. There's a proclamation of 1530 where he talks about having a proper Catholic English Bible and none of these sort of misleading translations by Lutherans like Tyndale. And, of course, the Bible rescues him from the dilemma of his first marriage by saying, you know, it wasn't your fault, you didn't realise, but it's there in the book of Leviticus, you should not have married your brother's widow. This is his explanation for why all those babies kept dying. And you can see how it makes psychological sense to him. And ever after, I think, his devotion to the word of God is very kind of consistent thread through some otherwise quite bumpy years. That said, like a lot of people at the time, it's not clear to me that he actually read that much of the Bible. This is what people do with Bibles historically. They dip in and they find the bit that suits them, the bit that supports their case, and this is the bit that they champion. Even Luther was a very patchy advocate of Scripture. There were bits that he felt very positively about and other bits that he rejected. Henry's not unusual in this, but I think when the pilgrimage of grace has broken out and he talks about the need for more Bibles in the north of England with the kind of slightly naive hope that if you give people Bibles, they will draw from them the need for obedience to their king. And you, know, you can get a lot of things out of the Bible, but that's not necessarily the most obvious takeaway. But the model of Old Testament kingship is clearly something he finds inspiring. And the iconography of the second half of his reign, he's constantly 
depicted as King David or King Solomon. And that gives a sort of measure of consistency to his policies in that these Old Testament kings ruled as religious figures as well as secular rulers. They were very keen on banishing idolatry. The smashing of images in the Old Testament is mirrored, I think, in Henry's quite vicious campaign against the use of images, particularly images that had some kind of miraculous power attributed to them. And he brings in the first official English Bible in 1539. These things all connect together. And yes, in hindsight, you can see why people mistook what he was doing and assumed he had Protestant leanings or he was taking the first steps along the road to Protestantism, but I don't think for a minute that was what he intended. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One major religious change is the dissolution of the monasteries. Yes. You've got 800 religious houses across England dissolved in four years. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinarily huge change and the impact mm-hmm. on the population must have been vast. And historians have argued, as we have about much of Henry VIII's reign, about whether it was about reform or about trying to get their hands on the money or a combination of the two. What do you think? Well, there were a lot of people involved in the dissolution of the monasteries and I don't think they all had the same objectives quite. I think Cromwell just wanted to get rid of monasticism and encouraged his commissioners to root out examples of corruption and superstition which were then gleefully displayed. Although even the Cromwellian commissioners occasionally had to say this is a very pious house with a very devout community and they seem okay to me. Henry himself was probably to begin with partly genuine in his ideas of reform. He wants to close down the smaller, less prosperous houses and he talks about redirecting the funds elsewhere and to be fair to him he does found six new bishoprics, he founds an Oxford and a Cambridge College, he does direct some of that money towards different types of religious endowment but much as his formidable grandmother had done Lady Margaret Beaufort had dissolved monasteries in order to found her Cambridge colleges there is precedent for this and a university college at this point is also a religious institution it's about redirection of religious endowments I think initially but to ordinary people monasteries particularly in the north of England where settlement patterns were a bit different Monasteries could represent an enormous amount. They were not just the focus of religious loyalty and religious life. They were employers on a grand scale. 
they were the source of healthcare and charitable giving and education and they were a place of safety in times of war or if you were a traveller. They fulfilled a really important role in society. So not unnaturally there's quite a lot of consternation at the closure of these houses and this sort of spirals into the pilgrimage of grace. And I think we know that Henry wasn't initially intending to get rid of monasticism altogether because in 1537 he found two new monasteries. He obviously hadn't made the decision at that point. But the more that monasteries are associated with rebellion, I think the less and less he comes to trust them. And one of the things that we can, I think, say about Henry's character is that he took any sign of betrayal very seriously indeed. He reacts very vindictively and angrily if he feels that anyone has let him down. So I think the monastery's days were numbered as soon as he began to see them as linked to sedition. And that absolutely would have been in the year 1536 with the Pilgrimage of Grace. And I think that's a very important year in Henry VIII's Mm -hmm. life. And it's a year, of course, in which we see the fall of Anne Boleyn. And we've talked about what had attracted Henry to Anne that she's brilliant and charismatic and interested Mm -hmm. in the intellectual questions he's interested in. So how can we explain her downfall? I don't think that Henry engineered her downfall in a cynical way, as some I know do. I think that although she wasn't guilty of multiple adulteries, or so it seems to me, seems a wildly implausible claim, I think he thought she was. And maybe that's something to do with this capacity for feeling betrayed, that you go from completely loving and trusting someone to feeling utterly let down by them. It's true that her circumstances were not auspicious. At the start of 1536, he had this terrible fall, this brush with death, which meant that he never jousted again, which gives an idea of the seriousness of it for him. And she had miscarried of this male child that to him was a seal of divine approval on his policies and the fact that once again God seemed to be telling him something I think probably made him more open to listening when people started to spread rumours about Anne and Anne herself I mean she remains this fascinating character and I think deservedly she was obviously fiercely intelligent a very strong-willed and strong-minded person and I think someone who loved to joke and the jokes she told were rather on the sort of borderline of what was acceptable and when repeated in the cold light of day some of them took on unfortunate implications yes I think it became believable to him that she had just mocked him and betrayed him and the savagery with which she was destroyed in such a short space of time and then his immediate marriage to someone else speaks to some pretty extreme emotions I think. It does indeed I'm completely with you I think that he comes to believe the charges against her or allows himself to be deceived into believing them or Mm -hmm. allows himself to be deluded perhaps Mm -hmm. one might say but just as a personal matter of interest here. Do you feel that this is something staged by Thomas Cromwell? And I suppose I'm asking a broader question here, which is about the role of Cromwell in the 1530s, Mm. because we've seen 
so many different positions on Cromwell's strength. G.R. Mm-hmm. Elton, mm-hmm. who we think of as the kind of granddaddy of Tudor history, saying that Cromwell was the heart of power and creating this reform in government. And then, of course, there was a swing of the pendulum to say it wasn't him at all. And then in fiction, Hilary Mantel has made him important again. And what role does Cromwell play in Anne's in particular, but also in the 1530s more generally? Well, Cromwell is a facilitator. Again, like Wolsey, he's very efficient. He's very good at getting things done. And Henry has come to depend on him. And rightly, he was the right person for the job. Henry was really rather good at choosing the right person for the job. But that doesn't mean that he initiated policy. I still think that a lot of Cromwell's skill lay in reading Henry's mood and Henry's aspirations correctly and trying to give him what he wanted. And of course, Cromwell's not beyond hitching a few others (laughs) to the tail of Henry's comet-like objectives. Sorry, that's a terrible metaphor, really, isn't it? But when Henry is so determined on the royal supremacy, Cromwell says, I can provide the citizens of London with preachers who will give a really eloquent denunciation of papal corruption and papal claims to power that belong to the papacy. The fact that those people are also pushing a Protestant agenda is not really brought to Henry's attention. That's just a sort of side effect of giving the king what he wanted and yes pleasing his own ideas at the same time a little bit but you can only do that if you're very careful and as indeed is the case that can backfire spectacularly and so when the Cleves marriage has failed Henry is just more open to an appreciation of just how Protestant Cromwell is and he has to go. I think Cromwell is very good at performing this rather delicate balancing act, but I don't think he was ever in charge of policy. What do you think we should make of the nature of the political regime in the 1530s? Because it's an age where we have legislation in 1534, the oath of succession, which every male subject has to swear to say that Anne is queen and Mary is not a legitimate. There's the act of treasons, there's the use of acts of attainder in these years, the 1539 suggestion that a king's proclamation should have the same status as acts of parliament. How do you think we should interpret these years? Is it tyranny? When Tudor monarchs make these very exaggerated claims to authority, it's usually because they feel that authority slipping from between their fingers. So I think a great many of the policies of the 1530s are defensive. Henry expected to carry people with him in his break from Rome. He expected the support of allies like Thomas More, who he wants to replace Wolsey as Lord Chancellor and then finds More is not in favour of the royal supremacy. He expects to take Parliament with him. And he manages to do that, but there's quite a lot of coercion and badgering involved before Parliament does what he wants. He expects people to say, yes, of course. He expects Catherine to go quietly into a nunnery. And when none of these things happen, he has to tighten his grip and he has to bring out a redefinition of the treason laws, a much broader definition of treason. You can commit treason just by having a quiet conversation in the tavern after Henry has brought in that statute. Yeah, he is scrambling, I think, to hold on to power 
which is not, I think, quite the same thing as tyranny. And I think also he's not really in a position to be a tyrant because he doesn't have the means of control. As we've said, there is no standing army. He doesn't really have much of a bureaucracy. He doesn't have the ability to force people in the provinces or even closer to home to do what he wants or say what he wants them to say. He has to persuade. So alongside all of that legislation in the 1530s, we also need to look at the kind of propaganda campaign which Cromwell helps orchestrate, persuading people that the break with Rome is a good thing. All the sermons that have to be given, explaining the royal supremacy. Yeah, he is not powerful enough to be a tyrant, even though his fury and his vengeance and some of his more arbitrary acts are reminiscent of a tyrant, he doesn't have the political strength to make that really stick. Talking about threat, everything that he's done in terms of his marital affairs and the break with Rome has created a very important foreign policy threat at this Mm. time from the rulers of Europe. Henry builds those forts on the south coast. There's moments of occasional unity between Charles V and the King of France. And the Pope excommunicates Henry eventually and issues a papal ball, Mm -hmm. suggesting that, in theory, anyone can invade and take his crown. How serious do you think the level of threat is in those years? I think it's very serious. And I think you can see that from the amount of money that Henry pours into defences, mortifications and also his last great war in France this is a sort of unprecedented level of military preparation and engagement so yes I think he's taking it very seriously indeed and here we're back to the shadows of his childhood when the pretenders seeking to supplant Henry VII could draw backing from Burgundy or from France or from Scotland or at different points he feels ganged up on and he has some cause to feel that way and one of his responses to this level of political threat is the decision to marry his fourth wife who is the sister of the Duke of Julius Cleve, mm-hmm. one of the principalities inclined towards reform and religion it's a kind of bulwark to the possibility of foreign attack Henry famously obviously doesn't take to her Mm -hmm. on seeing her. And we're back to Cromwell here because in trying to get out of this marriage, he allows his best servant to be sacrificed, essentially. Could you talk me through what you think is going on there? Is it back to this sense of betrayal? Because it seems extraordinary that once again, Mm. we have one of the people closest to Henry who has done the most for him, just as Catherine had done, just Mm -hmm. as Wolsey had done, just as Anne had done, now being sacrificed because they've got in the way of what Henry wants and actually done so callously as well, being Mm -hmm. executed on the day of his fifth wedding always seems to me a particularly spiteful way of doing it. He does make these grand gestures, doesn't he? And they are really quite disturbing. It's extraordinarily important to Henry to keep up the appearance of brilliant success and when anybody undermines that picture brings that picture into disrepute then he's very unhappy about it. The Cleves marriage in itself was not a particularly glittering match. It is an indication of just how isolated England is by this point. 
It's not the grand foreign marriage you would imagine. It's not Catherine of Aragon again. It's a fairly small principality or duchy and she's not much to write home about in political terms. It turns out that in personal terms she's also lacking in charm, bless her. But I think it was anyway a little bit of a desperate throw on Cromwell's part to try and bring that marriage about. And then Henry's made to look a fool. And he's made to look a fool in a very personal way because it really all hinges on his impotence. Now, his sexual prowess had already been called into question at the trial of Anne Boleyn because this is one of the things that she is supposed to have gossiped to her brother about. It's humiliating for him as a man as well as a ruler. And... Yeah, Cromwell had failed to give him what he needed. He loses faith in people, I think. And so I think he lost faith in Cromwell. And of course, once he has lost faith, it is evident that Cromwell is, in Henry's words, a sacramentarian, someone who maintains these heresies about the Eucharist. So that would just compound his sense of betrayal. We need to just mention his two other children, Elizabeth and Edward, and the death of his first son, Henry Fitzroy, Mm. in these years as well. And as we move into the 1540s, we see the royal children starting to feature in portraiture, often at the behest of Catherine Parr, and their return to court. And Mary and Elizabeth, having been put out of the line of succession in 1536, are restored to it in 1544 without being made legitimate. What's going Mm. on there? Yes, again, Henry thinks that he has the power to do things that other kings cannot. He can't go back on his word and declare them legitimate because that would be to make a mockery of his marital career to date. But they are still his daughters, so therefore they matter, so therefore restoring them to the succession, as I'm sure he would have done with Henry Fitzroy. I think it's very significant that when Henry Fitzroy is ennobled, he's given the Duchy of Richmond, and of course Richmond is the title that Henry VII held before he came to the throne. So I think he is very much grooming him as a possible heir. And it seems that the honour of being a child of Henry VIII wipes out any concerns that people should have about legitimacy. Yeah, he brings them back in. I don't think for a minute he actually thought either Mary or Elizabeth would inherit. I mean, his provision in his will for them is aimed very much at what sort of marriage they might make. And of course, you use your family at this period as bargaining chips in the game of international politics. They could have been very useful there. But I think by that point, he is desperately conscious of the fact that his heir is a very small boy. And he is doing everything he can to strengthen any future regime. And co-opting Mary and Elizabeth into that was an intelligent thing to do. In his last years, he's very ill. He dies in his 50s. As you say, his son hasn't even reached double digits. Mm. And some historians have felt that in those years he was being manipulated by the religious groupings at court. Otherwise, I feel that he remains in charge. But one thing is certain is that when Edward becomes king, the people around him are Protestants. And we could argue that was to some extent foreseeable. We could argue it. What do you make of Henry in those last years and his legacy? Yeah, I think Henry didn't realise that his authority wasn't really going to extend beyond the grave. He lays down, as you know only too well, very 
careful provision in his will for what is to happen next. I don't think he gives Edward VI a Protestant council. I think he gives him a balanced council with both Protestant and conservative elements and a fair degree of political skill also. And I don't think he gave Edward VI on purpose a Protestant education. I think he gave him the best education that money could buy with Cambridge scholars of repute. And as it happened, that led them all down a path towards Protestantism. But I don't think that's at all what he envisaged. I think we have to remember that the categories of Protestant and Catholic in the 1540s are still quite fluid. And Protestants, insofar as we can identify them across Europe, are still deeply divided over how they understand, in particular, the Eucharistic doctrine, but they're divided about quite a lot of other things as well. And equally, within the Catholic Church, there's a huge range of opinion, from some really quite hardline reactionary stuff, to the kind of reformist thinking, which also embraces vernacular scripture and clerical education and reform and maybe even a version of justification by faith alone because there are Catholic evangelicals too who embrace some of these notions so it's all very fluid in the 1540s so I think it's a little bit misleading to think of it as being defined and sort of definite groupings pushing for one or another conclusion. Henry of course we know is very interested in theology and rather likes some of this theological debate, just as long as he's in control of it. So he's extremely unhappy at the thought that his subjects are arguing about religion and how to interpret the Bible in the pub on the Friday night. He talks about the word of God being jangled about in taverns and so on. He's really distressed by this. But I think he also thought that people should just do as they were told and obey and if Henry said you're to read the Bible but reverently and not question interpretation but interpret it in the ways that I will lay down in these various publications. He didn't envisage just how disruptive the forces of religious controversy could be and he had unleashed them unwittingly. And I think by the end of his reign he is beginning to see that this was not what he wanted to happen. His famous speech to Parliament on Christmas Eve 1545, he seems genuinely distraught by the extent of religious division and animosity. But no, I think what he wanted for Edward was a regime which could bring together some of these disparate groups in the service of the Tudor monarchy, and that people should settle their differences and obey their king as supreme head of the church. And this is why he persecutes both Papists and Protestants, because he's shaving off the extremists at either end of the spectrum. But I think he probably had hoped that Edward's regime would be a kind of consolidation of the middle ground. I know it's odd to talk about Henry as having some kind of doctrine of moderation here. It's a very bloodthirsty moderation, which murders people to right and left. But there is, I think, an idea there that what is fundamentally important is church unity. I think that's what he would have aimed for. That's very helpful. Thank you so much. 
And just so listeners know, you have gone above and beyond to deliver us this interview because we are recording this <laughs> not for the first, but for the second time, for reasons technical. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time, not once, but twice, to talk to me about <laughs> Henry VIII. And I think that listeners could reward you and themselves indeed by picking up one of your wonderful books on Henry VIII, either your biography or your most recent book, Tudor England, which of course looks the other monarchs as well. Thank you so much for your time and for hosting me here at Lincoln College. You're very welcome. It's lovely to talk to you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Not Just Tudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.